Why was the basketball court all wet? Because the players kept dribbling on it. The dad joke. <laughs> Corny, groan-worthy, but also one of the simplest ways to share a moment with your kids. What did the buffalo say when he dropped his son off for school? Bye, son. <laughs> so take a moment to make your kid laugh, because dad jokes rule. Make your kid laugh today. Go to fatherhood.gov. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services and the Ad Council. Widely considered the best African-American basketball player of his time, Cumberland Posey was an exceptional multi-sport athlete who played from the early 1900s to the mid-1920s. After leading Duquesne University in scoring for three seasons, he created, managed, and played for the legendary Loendi Big Five. His team was the most dominant of the Black Fives era, winning four straight colored basketball world championships. At the same time he was starring on the hardwood, Posey was also a legend on the diamond as a talented center fielder and club owner. He is now the only individual to be enshrined in both Cooperstown and Springfield. Welcome to Good Seats Still Available, a curious little podcast devoted to exploring what used to be in professional sports. Here's your host, Tim Hanlon. Hello, gang. What is going on? My name is indeed Tim Hanlon, and I appreciate you finding our little show we like to call Good Seats Still Available, our curious little journey each and every week into what used to be in professional sports. Thanks for finding us. Uh, and, uh, you know, people call me all kinds of things. Um, the captain of contraction, I've been called. I've been called the uh, the evocator of expansion, uh, the professor of previously domiciled. I also go by the doctor of defunct, uh, the reverend of relocation, whatever you choose to call me. Again, of course, please keep it clean. It's a family show to some extent. I am uh, your humble host and uh, the uh, chief ringleader. Uh, of the uh, frivolity uh, and uh, intrigue that uh, we <laughs> somehow uh, find a we every uh, something to do each and every week around uh, this crazy topic that we've uh, kind of uh, made for ourselves that uh, the teams and leagues and various things that are no longer with us for whatever reasons and um, we love uh, any opportunity to uh, go back to uh, what we're going to get into this week again uh, the Negro Leagues and uh, we uh, have our return guest Jim Overmeyer who you may remember from. Uh, an episode, uh, geez, I guess it was about uh, four or five maybe weeks ago. We talked about the Atlantic City Baccarat Giants. Uh, Atlantic City's really own, uh, you know, or only ever real quote unquote major league professional team of any sort. Fascinating discoveries there, Boardwalk Empire and all. Uh, but Jim has a brand new book out. It came out uh, just a couple of months ago, just before the pandemic uh, outbreak and all the craziness and, and other things that have sort of engulfed our world since. But it's a great book and an amazing topic uh, where I learn an incredible amount. Uh, and we talk about the life of a one Cumberland Posey. Uh, he of not only the Homestead Grays, he was the uh, the founder and the player and the manager and the owner uh, of the uh, longtime legendary uh, Negro Leagues, plural, different leagues, different environments, team uh, that played uh, in suburban Pittsburgh, uh, sort of Homestead, Pennsylvania, uh, but also in uh, Washington, D.C., as we've kind of alluded to with some of our previous chats about uh, baseball in D.C. Yes, the Homestead Grays were kind of, uh, over a period of time, uh, kind of a, a dual city kind of situation. But this guy, Cumberland Posey, not only was he 
substantial in the creation, the running, and the uh, the legacy of this uh, uh, incredible uh, and arguably um, one of the most memorable Negro League teams, the, the Homestead Grays. Uh, as we discover in our conversation with Jim in just a couple of moments, uh, Cumberland Posey was, and by the way, not only a baseball Hall of Famer uh, in 2006, posthumously, of course, uh, but also a legendary and seminal basketball player as well. Back in the Black Fives era, or also known as early Black basketball, uh, the Black Fives era were kind of like the, you know, the pre-National Basketball Association and uh, the leagues that kind of preceded that, the uh, the uh, NBL and the Basketball Association of America and these various industrial teams that we've talked about in, in previous episodes as well. But uh, it, this is almost like sort of the uh, the uh, basketball equivalent of the Negro Leagues that is in basketball. And this Black Fives era is something we want to go much deeper in, but this is a great uh, shoehorn into the beginnings of, of that exploration. Uh, you're talking about teams, I mean, dozens of them. Uh, in the era from roughly about 1904, 1905 or so until, you know, arguably until about 1950 or so when the NBA uh, finally became uh, a thing uh, as well as racially integrated. And we're talking about like uh, teams that they were called quints uh, sometimes, uh, colored fives or Negro fives or more simply and and more um, reverentially now referred to as black fives. Uh, we're talking about uh, uh, many, many teams in, in places like Philadelphia and Cleveland and New York and, and D.C. and Chicago and Pittsburgh. And Cumberland Posey was uh, arguably, not so arguably, uh, regarded as one of the greatest players of that era. And frankly, uh, as his induction into the Nation- the Naismith, sorry, well, Naismith National Memorial Basketball Hall of Fame as well in 2016. Yes, a baseball Hall of Famer inductee in 2006, posthumously, and the Basketball Hall of Fame in 2016. 2006 for baseball, 2016 for basketball. There you go. This is a guy who uh, is regarded as one of the best basketball players of all time, not only just the Black Fives era. And this is a fascinating story of a phenomenal athlete and sportsman and manager and runner of teams and owner and all that kind of stuff in sports that uh, the uh, is just a an amazing discovery that we get into with our guest this week, Jim Overmeyer. Uh, and his book is called Composy of the Homestead Grays, a biography of the Negro League's owner and Hall of Famer. But as you're here in our chat and as well in the book, uh, it's really a misnamed kind of title because uh, we spend half of the conversation talking about not only the Homestead Grays and Posey's baseball legacy, but the Black Five era, Black Fives era basketball uh, realm that uh, Posey was uh, instrumental in uh, as well. It's sort of a dual natured conversation uh, with Jim coming up in just a few moments. Uh, It is fascinating stuff and uh, the book absolutely well worth the read. You will learn a lot as I did. Uh, Before we get there, I want to say thank you. Continued thanks, as always, to one of our oldest and most loyal of sponsors. That's our pal Dean Mitchell in beautiful San Diego, California, and uh, it's sportshistorycollectibles.com. It is the well-lit, better version, more curated and lushly photographed site of all kinds of memorabilia from leagues that, in uh, in Dean's words, thrived, failed, and shaped the North American sports landscape 
of today, sportshistorycollectibles.com. You pick the sport, you'll probably find an item or two or dozen or so, uh, whether that's baseball or basketball or soccer or hockey or football, hell, even Olympic sports and uh, sort of other sports that don't have didn't have leagues per se. Uh, all amazing stuff. Uh, again, well curated, well lit, beautifully photographed and uh, available for consideration and purchase. This is stuff you're not going to find on eBay. Uh, and uh, you you know and you can trust the source. Uh, high quality service is what Dean and his friends are all about. And of course, we've got a promo code for you. We would not leave you hanging without such. And that's the, the promo code is good seats. One word, good seats. That's the promo code at sportshistorycollectibles.com. Again, sportshistorycollectibles.com. Promo code good seats for 15% off all of your great memorabilia purchases uh, when you go there early and often. And uh, we thank, of course, we tip our Homestead Gray's cap uh, in the general direction of Dean uh, Mitchell and uh, and his friends at sportshistorycollectibles.com. Check them out, support the show, and uh, we appreciate it to no end. We also appreciate you listening to our fine chat, our return visit with Jim Overmeyer. Here we go. Let's get into the Homestead Grays and the Black Fives era basketball story of Cumberland Posey. What an amazing character this guy was. Here's our chat uh, we had just a couple of weeks ago, and uh, please enjoy. Why don't you uh, give our audience a sense of um, who you are, you know, the proverbial day or night jobs or or, 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 or previous uh, careers, and then maybe sort of skate into where the interest in just Negro League baseball generally came from, and then we'll slide into uh, second base, I guess, with the uh, Cumberland Posey story. <laughs> okay. Well, I'm a uh, retired uh, financial management type from New York State government, and my wife and I... Uh, moved to uh, Tucson, Arizona to uh, get away from the snow. We sold our snowblower and moved to, uh, gave away our snow shovels and moved to the Southwest two years ago. I had been um, a newspaper reporter at one time, so I've, I've written a lot, a lot uh, over, over the years. I'm also a member of the uh, Society for American Baseball Research and I attended a meeting at the Hall of Fame in 1988, and it was on a weekend, and my wife had never been to the museum, so she came along, and her name is Ellen Wyden, and she didn't want to go to the meeting, obviously, so she went through the museum, and we're, we're out of town. We are, we're going out of town, and we are stopped at the only stoplight in downtown Cooperstown, New York, and she says... So who is this Ethel Manley anyway? And I'm, you know, I'm a big baseball person. I said, who? I have no idea who you're talking about. Well, there's a Negro Leagues exhibit in the hall, and she was a prominent uh, civil rights advocate and owner of a team in Newark, and she's really interesting. You should write something about her. And I said, okay, sure. And uh, then nothing much happened. For, well, I actually started to research a little, but nothing much happened, and then a year later, I met uh, a guy who became my good friend and mentor, Larry Hogan, from around Newark, who had arranged for the 
donation of Effa Manley's business papers, which had been left behind in her house in Newark when she moved away in the early 50s, and somehow didn't get thrown out, burned out, burned up, flooded or anything in the basement of this house. He arranged for them to be donated to the Newark Public Library. It's the single biggest source of primary material in the Negro League. So I then made 20 or 25 trips to Newark (laughs) from around Albany to uh, look at these papers over a year or two and resulted in, I never thought in my life I would write a book, but it resulted in a book, uh, Queen of the Negro Leagues, a biography of F.A. Manley, who was a uh, contemporary owner of, of our man, Cumberland Posey. So that's how I got into it. I, I just fell right into it. It's a fascinating topic. I've got three three books, uh, three and a half, I guess you could say, because the Manley book is now out in a second edition uh, this year. So books of my own and contributed to other people's books and a member of the Sabre Negro Leagues Committee. And um, it just took me over. I, I, can I do nothing about this? almost nothing about this branch of baseball before well, my wife spoke up at the stoplight. Well, no, and good for her. And frankly, we should have her on the uh, on the episode here to kind of explain what, how important she is to all this. So, I, so but just, you know, obviously, so I, our little silly show is focused on sort of the, this broad yet very niche and, and arguably borderline obsessive uh, sort of fascination with various teams and leagues and stuff that that don't exist anymore and and obviously the further back you go the more quote unquote historical it gets but you know the uh, and we've had a we've we've talked to Bob Luke a little bit about about F. Manley and we've certainly talked about uh you know as teams like the Kansas City Monarchs and but it, it's interesting as you as you sort of go back into the baseball thing which by the way baseball probably the most thoroughly researched and obsessively statisticized if that's a word i just made one up uh, of all the sports, right, and arguably the longest uh, lasting of American sports, and that's been partially why. But what is it about the Negro Leagues specifically that is so, at least in my mind, endlessly fascinating? I, I, I got to guess, I'll throw out my sort of two cents, is that some of it, frankly, is still, I wouldn't call it undiscovered, but is still I, the 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 um, I guess the historical uh, uh, markings of what transpired during those leagues and the relative uh, relative ragtagness of what those were, it, it seems to me still uh, prime for unearthing new and fascinating stories and tidbits and pieces of information, say, versus the more, I guess, standardized, you know, uh, white side of baseball, so to speak. I, 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 it just seems like the stories are more colorful and, and the intrigue is, is higher. For these Negro leagues, but that's my two cents. How about you? Um, I agree with you. Um, the real attraction is, well, the history curve or arc or whatever of the Negro leagues is very strange because they were mostly they weren't completely ignored by the white press, but obviously they got much more play when they were active in the black newspapers, and then integration. Jackie Robinson, Larry Doby, uh, Satchel Page, and all of that killed off the Negro Leagues. I mean, they they were segregated. They operated in their own realm, uh, mostly catering to black fans, although not entirely, and mostly covered by the black newspapers, although not entirely. But then when the best 
black players started to appear in the previously white Major League Baseball, the fans all flocked to see them, and the Negro Leagues died out. They were basically undermined by the early 50s and completely defunct by 1960, and frankly, nobody cared about them anymore. And then they started to get rediscovered in the 70s. The, um, the Hall of Fame put together a special committee in 1971 and elected the first nine Negro Leaguers to the Hall, and books came started to be written, basically a lot of them based upon real-life interviews. A lot of the best players were still alive then, and so they were interviewed and books were written, and so in the 70s, and then the whole thing went, it, it dipped down, and then it sort of came back. It became something that people were interested in. So that, And what you discover is the Negro Leagues, yes, they were kind of ragtag at times. They were, they were financially disadvantaged because their main fan base had less money than Major League Baseball's fan base, very susceptible, very sensitive to financial uh, uh, economic downturns, the Great Depression being the main one. So they they had uh, some of the leagues didn't last very long, and, and some of the lesser teams would fire up and last a couple of years and disappear. But in the end, it developed... That was where the good black players developed the best, the best of the the first wave of black players in the majors: Willie Mays, Jackie Robinson, obviously, Hank Aaron, Ernie Banks, Roy Campanella, all got their early training in the Negro Leagues. So they were they weren't set up to be the feeder system for Major League Baseball, but in fact they were, and had they not existed, I don't know where those guys would have developed their talents to have broken that barrier and set the set the stage for real integration. So that's why they're important. Yeah, I, it, it's a fascinating tableau, and I, you know, it's um, I, to me, it's it's just a. a uh, and, you know, folks who are listening to this episode will probably also want to search up our uh, our other episode with you talking about one of those teams, the Atlantic, Atlantic City, New Jersey Baccarats. But w- let us uh, turn our attention to uh, the matter at hand here. Uh, our excuse, you know, we always look for tangents is, and, and raison d'etre, so to speak, uh, obviously is is a team within that sort of uh, firmament known as the Homestead Grays. But in particular, a gentleman that I also I guess maybe like you had to introduce, but maybe also in the introduction of him and his role, it will get into. Uh, how does he? Uh, how does he get into your into your consciousness too? Given that you've been focused on the Effa Manless Manly story, excuse me. He says, "How does he become your next uh, target, so to speak, of of interest?" Well, he uh, he was a, a contemporary. The the her Effa's Newark Eagles were active in the league at the same time. The Homestead Grays, in fact, they were. Um, by the mid-40s were probably the two best teams in the league. So in following the Manly story, of course, I learned about all these other owners, and some of them are interesting and some of them are not so interesting. Well, Posey was kind of fascinating. I actually started to research him 20 years ago, and I came to the... At one point, I wrote a paper on him for a seminar, and I says, you know, I really don't like this guy. So I stopped working on him, and of course... 
that was very naive. Of course, if if why why did you not like people, him, you think? Well, he he was he was a very domineering and, and somewhat abrasive character <laughs> up front. And I said, man, this guy is this guy is kind of an sob. And of course, I came to realize if you do, if you if no one wrote biographies of people who weren't nice, then what would we know about Napoleon or Genghis Khan or anything? You know, so that's kind of stupid. He was he was very successful. So I cranked it up again a few years ago. And once you get by his utter self-confidence and his in fact, he was not at all shy about criticizing people to whom he disagreed with, which is practically everybody at one time or another. He was an amazingly successful businessman. He was a baseball businessman which and basketball businessman, which makes it even more interesting. And he did a lot for not only his um, African-American community in Homestead, which is a, a suburb of Pittsburgh, but nationally in, in some ways. He did a lot of good things. You just had to get over his personality. As I said in the book, he was admired and respected by his fellow owners, but probably never beloved, but he could have cared less. <laughs> that was not he wasn't in it to be loved he was in it to be successful and to and to bring along the black community behind him to the extent he could influence parts of it well and and, and obviously uh, arguably and, and very posthumously uh, uh lauded as a member of the uh, baseball hall of fame in 2006 arguably way later than perhaps he should have been but okay but you're hinting at maybe sort of the the foundation of this uh, journey into baseball and uh, business orientation of such, as well as being as a player, this was sort of in the basketball realm and and maybe a little bit of a, a background in that, because this seems to be kind of his passion in during his collegiate years is this basketball thing. And I think also, interestingly, maybe the first time we've kind of stumbled into this sort of the, uh, I wouldn't call it the Negro Leagues of professional basketball, but certainly the you know the uh, the 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 Negro uh, League, if you will, equivalents of, if you will, semi or fully pro basketball. This Black Fives kind of scenario, um, which even seems even less formed than, say, some of the Negro leagues, and that's saying something. Very, yeah, very much so. Um, he was an all-sport athlete at Homestead High School. He was football, basketball, and baseball, and then he played professional basketball and baseball, and he played semi-pro football. Um, he Basketball, black basketball, they were, you know, pretty much entirely segregated at the time. They were, I mean, there were no integrated teams, but black and white baseball teams played each other, but black and white basketball teams, at least outside of whatever city you were in, rarely competed against each other. So, But um, Posey... Uh, and other good black players started a, a semi-pro team in Pittsburgh called the Monticellos, the Monticello Athletic Association. And they got good. And, and there were probably a dozen high-level black basketball teams between the East Coast and Chicago, say. There was one good one in Chicago. And there, there was absolutely no league, but they would start – 
after they got done polishing off the local opposition, which they usually did very easily, they would challenge each other. There'd be these challenges. Uh, generally, you'd try to play each other three times during the season. That way, someone would win at least two, and there wouldn't be no question who won it, who won the series. But it, you play at least a couple of games, a home-and-home home series, and the black sporting press would sort of coalesce around who was the consensus champion. It was based upon the fact that, well, A beat B and B beat C, so therefore A is the champion. Um, and Posey's team, which was uh, he, the Monticellos, they went through different iterations of sponsors, but finally the premier Black Bend Social Club in Pittsburgh, the Lowendy Club, of which Posey's father had been the president at one time and was still a member, a prominent member, sponsored the team. And the Lowendys started playing around. They played teams in New York. They played Philadelphia, and they would beat them. And were the consensus black national champions, the nation basically, as I said, running from like New York City to Chicago. They were the consensus black champions five years running in the early and mid-20s. Posey himself played. He was a guard. High scorer, usually the high scorer, uh, because in those days the rules allowed, if anyone were fouled and foul shots were awarded, the uh, team would could pick a designated shooter. Well, he was a, usually the designated shooter, and back in the days of the lopsided basketball, he actually was a, about a 60% foul shooter, which is probably equivalent to a 90% foul shooter today with a really round ball with no laces on it. And um, he was uh, considered to be one of the best, if not the best, Black ball, black professional basketball players in his prime against as a consensus opinion of fellow basketball entrepreneurs and sports writers. Well, at some point, we probably want to delve into this. I guess you could call it in quotes of the Black Fives era. Uh, but I guess this colored, quote unquote, colored basketball world championship, that's what it was called. I'm just curious, uh, before we sort of segue into the baseball and his, uh, if you will, full-time conversion to baseball, I'm just wondering, given especially his entrepreneurial and business uh, interests, I guess, as a sportsman and as a sports businessman over time, uh, why perhaps there wasn't he and or generally more, I don't know, codification or investment or focus perhaps on perhaps building out basketball as much as there seem to be efforts to do so in baseball around that. I think in I think in the end, except for certain places like big metropolitan areas, New York City, Chicago, there just wasn't enough money in it. Not enough fans. You also had and I think this is true today, uh of the in so called indoor sports, uh, basketball and hockey, you have to find a place to play pretty easy not i mean not totally easy but it's fairly easy to find a ball field or or a football field or, or a park that would accommodate both football and baseball in season but you've got to find a gymnasium uh and that became that became a problem um because the blacks couldn't play just anywhere no madison square garden for them so finding a finding a venue was difficulty. The um, 
the Lowendies had a, had a, had dibs on a good location for many years. That there in the mid twenties they lost it, not no fault of their own. The uh, it was a, a building um, owned by the labor council in Pittsburgh, and the second floor was a ballroom. And of course, you played basketball anywhere where you could find an open space in those days. So, but then the labor council sold the building, and they lost their lost their basketball floor. It was it was difficult, it was, and this was true of white bas of white basketball too. You know, there there were there were regional white leagues in the twenties and thirties, and they all died, they pretty much all died out. And the we think of the NBA as roaring onto the scene in the forties, but it 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 was built upon financially unsustainable predecessors who at least planted the seed that there could be a professional basketball league. So just the money just wasn't there. He, he was, they were losing money, and so were a lot of the other teams, and teams were folding. And he just he turned the basketball team into a local attraction. You know, by about 1926, they would he would he would get some of the better Pittsburgh black players, and in fact, it was some place that his some of his baseball players could make a little money and stay in shape in the off season, but. After that, they were strictly uh, a local attraction. Yeah, and a lot of obviously a lot of the early basketball days uh, uh, certainly was were tied to companies, corporations, and uh, uh, you know, sort of as uh, things to keep uh, uh, you know the more athletically inclined uh, uh, occupied during the off hours, so to speak. And and but uh, that, so again, that's very interesting. So why though, uh, and how perhaps does uh, Cumberland Posey sort of? get into the baseball thing because it seems like he was kind of playing and or tinkering around, if you will, on the baseball side as well around this time and, and then makes the full leap to it, if you will. I, I'm just curious as to how that gem, how that uh, uh, emanates. He became a player, an outfielder on a semi-professional team called the, home, called the Homestead Grays in 1910 or 1911. And he was just a player, uh, but he was, he was pretty good. Uh, and, uh, the team was pretty popular, and they had this particular thing. It was a part. It was a part-time thing. Everybody had a day job, and you played after work or on weekends. Weekends is when you really made your money, obviously. But the president of the organization and the manager, field manager, player manager of the team were devout Christians, and they didn't want the team to play on Sundays, which is when you made your money. So they were encouraged to step aside. I mean, I don't think they were forced aside. They just stepped aside because the rest of the team wanted to be out there on Sundays. Well, Posey became um, the field manager of the team, and it played on Sundays. It would they would sort of play anywhere. They would pile. They would get on streetcars if it was really local. They would pile into a couple of touring cars and go a little farther. They started playing around Pittsburgh, and they were very successful. And then they expanded to Western Pennsylvania, and they were very successful. And they started to play Western Pennsylvania, Eastern Ohio, West Virginia. Busy, busy, busy. Played. I don't know, almost as many games in a season as a major league schedule. And they were make money. They they were a good team. They were, you know, they were different. I think let's let's face it, the uh, black teams were a little 
exotic. Maybe in some of these small towns, people would come to see him play, particularly if they were good. So by the early 1920s, he's got a real strong regional setup. They They were much admired and much sought after. It got to the point where he could demand, you know, the, the, the usual attendance and, uh, dollar split is for semi-pro or was, is like 60% to the home team and 40% to the visiting team because the home team's got to pay the umpires. They've got to maintain the park and everything. Well, Posey was known to demand 75% of the gate to bring his gate, his team to your town, but you would pay it happily because you would have two or three times the people in the seats as you would if you were playing your usual opposition. So there was money, there was money to be made. He made it by the mid twenties. He had reached out to black major league level players who were at odds with their team owners or at loose ends or whatever and signed them. He gradually replaced the local heroes, including himself as the left fielder. He put himself out of business as a player, but he meant to do it because he just, he was good, but he wasn't that good. And he was clearly building a, he was building towards something. We don't know exactly what his goal was at any given time, but he was always moving up. He was building his team to be something better than it was the year before, or the two years before, or the three years before, and by the mid twenties, he's got some really good players, and they're in they're in great demand around uh, around that tri-state area. This sounds to me, though, that this uh, what you're describing right now is, is that this is obviously semi-pro, not even sort of league-based, so to speak. It almost feels like the the proverbial barnstorming kind of model. Yeah, it was. It was by by then. If you had if you had a day job in the in the steel mills or something like that, you could forget about playing on the Grays. I mean, they were always on the move. They were, they'd go here, they'd go there, they'd play they'd play at home, or pre or in the Pittsburgh area during the week, and then Saturdays and Sundays, whoosh, away they'd go. They'd be in Cleveland, they'd be in Youngstown, Ohio, they'd be in Charleston, West Virginia, they'd be halfway across. Pennsylvania, and uh, no, they were they barnstormed a lot. And who were they playing? Were they playing other other pre Negro League type teams? Were they playing white teams? Were they playing to some extent? Mm-hmm. Okay, mostly white teams. Mostly white teams. They were they were they would play lower level in the in the spring or the well May by May, they'd be playing uh, lower level minor league team, white minor league teams for kind of warm ups for both for both sides. But it you know, it was all money. It might have been, may not have been an official league game, but it was a money for everybody. They would play white teams, they would play industrial and business sponsored teams in Pittsburgh and all the way into Ohio. And those were mostly almost always white teams. I think probably not integrated teams, although that's a little hard to tell. They they had a real home away from home in Akron, Ohio, for years, playing team. A lot of the teams in Ohio, oddly enough, were sponsored by tire companies and stuff. I think it was General Tire in Akron. They'd go to uh, there were other places in Ohio. Denison, Ohio, in that area, had a couple of good white teams that they would play. 
Yeah, they were, and, and Pitts, uh, Western Pennsylvania was just full of them. The mine, the mining companies had teams. There was a a company called General Tube in Pittsburgh that made literally everything from sewer pipes to flagpoles. If it was if it was long and metal and had a hole in the middle, they made it, and they had a really good team. And so they would play General Tube all the time, three four times a year. So that there was just this world of semi-pro, white semi-pro baseball. It was shadowed by, if I may use the term, by this smaller world of black semi-pro baseball, and the Grays moved around in all of it in ever-widening circles as they moved way beyond uh, Pittsburgh. Okay, what's this? Ah, yes, the new book by Diane Shaw. I am happy and ecstatic to recommend it. It's called A Farewell to Arms, Legs, and Jockstraps. Who is Diane Shaw, you may ask, and what's it about? Well, Diane Shaw is a uh, a writer of mystery novels and biographies and other, other great works. But before that, uh, you may have known her in the 1960s and 1970s as the pioneering female sports journalist that kind of broke through the barriers, the glass ceilings, if you will. Uh, becoming really the first uh, major national newspaper sports columnist who happened to be female at the uh, Los Angeles Herald Examiner, for, uh, for that matter. And uh, it, her book uh, is just it's just chock full of great anecdotes. It's a memoir of all of her trials and travails, shall we say, uh, in trying to cover sports in this country as a woman. You know, back in the 60s and 70s, you young whippersnappers, you have no idea how challenging it was. And there's a whole generation and then some of female sports reporters and columnists and writers and and on-air personalities who can uh, owe their careers uh, to the doors that uh, she uh, just uh, plowed through uh, back back in the day. And uh, some great stories and some great uh, anecdotes. And and one that we especially love uh, features a certain United States president uh, and uh, some interesting times when he was uh, running a team and then trying to bulldoze his way through uh, the old USFL, the New Jersey Generals in particular. Uh, I'm not going to repeat the story here. It's well worth <laughs> the price of admission in this book alone. And uh, we uh, highly encourage you uh, to check it out wherever fine books are found. It's called A Farewell to Arms, Legs, and Jockstraps. It is published by the Indiana University Press and their imprint, Red Lightning Books. And we thank both of them uh, for uh, offering our listeners an exclusive free chapter download uh, right now. You just, all you have to do is visit this little uh, website and I'll repeat it again, because it's a little clunky. Uh, And you're gonna get a free special uh, sneak peek, free chapter of the book, A Farewell to Arms, Legs and Jockstraps. Just go to this website, iupress.org slash jockstraps dash good seats. That's iupress.org. It's I, the letter I, the letter U, press, iupress.org, slash jockstraps, one word, dash good seats, one word. And again, you're going to get a free special sneak peek, a free chapter download of the brand new book by Diane Shaw, A Farewell to Arms, Legs, and Jockstraps. Uh, if you don't remember that uh, URL, we'll have a link to it on our website at goodseatsstillavailable.com. Uh, off of this episode, and um, you will enjoy this book. I guarantee it. And I appreciate the friends, our friends, our new friends at Red Lightning Books and Indiana Indiana University Press, hard to say, 
uh, for their sponsorship and uh, bringing our attention uh, to this great book by Dan- Diane Shaw. He says, a farewell to arms, legs, and jock straps. Uh, I know you'll enjoy the free sample, and I know you'll enjoy the book. Try it out, and uh, as they say, you'll be glad you did. All right, back to our uh, conversation. Here it comes. seems like we're getting a sense of, of, of Posey's sort of idea that there's there's quote unquote money to be made. There's there's a business, so to speak, in this. But I'm also really curious as to, you know, it seems like it's a pretty sort of successful enterprise, if not daunting in terms of travel and getting all the players he needs and, and being sort of on the move all the time. Uh, I guess the flirtations, uh, that's the only word I can come up with right now, of uh, quote unquote league play. And there seem to be a couple of different starting points for that. One in I guess it was 1929. There's an interesting year to circle, right, with this quote-unquote American Negro League. And then again, uh, with this East-West League thing in, in 32. Um, so uh, give me a sense of maybe why and what these uh, formative leagues were and why maybe the attraction? You had the second, uh, uh, the first, Rube Foster in Chicago founded, and others founded the first Negro National League in 1920, which was primarily a Midwestern-based league. Then in 1923, the Eastern Colored League started in uh, along the Eastern Seaboard, right, roughly from, or basically from New York City down to Baltimore, and some places in between. Posey had opportunities to join both leagues. And this is what I, he was so canny. I mean, he, he, he would go against the grain if he thought it would work. He resisted joining the leagues for a couple of reasons. One of which was if he didn't belong to the leagues, he could, uh, without real impunity, raid their rosters and sign the best players. And the Grays made money. He said, and this is probably true, that the Grays made money every year until the Depression. Uh, There was no overarching commissioner or czar or Judge Landis or whatever of black baseball. And you could go shopping for players. And if you were in the league, there there were a lot of restrictions. But if you weren't in the league, you could entice good talent away from somebody who was in the league, and there wasn't a whole lot they could do about it. They could refuse to play you, but then the Grays were such a good draw, they probably wouldn't do that either. He also marketed his Pittsburgh area. The Eastern League stopped short of Pittsburgh. The Western League stopped short of Pittsburgh, but the two leagues would play exhibition games, if you will, with each other. And he he said, hey, you're coming east to west, west to east. Why don't you stop in Pittsburgh and play the Grays? for a day and then move on. And that worked that worked pretty well too. He tried to get a formal arrangement, but that didn't really work out. But in but the, he started to play Negro the Grays started to play Negro League teams by picking them up as they passed through western Pennsylvania en route to either Chicago, say, or or Philadelphia or whatever. So there was so so he was on the outskirts on the fringes of league baseball, but he refused to get involved until 1929 when he, when he put the Grays in the, in the American Negro League. And by that point, we think of 
we think of the depression, you know, starting with the Wall Street crash in October. But what it ha- what really was happening was that there was a real decline in American manufacturing starting in about 1927. I mean, the depression largely started because manufacturers were just making too much. The warehouses were full of refrigerators and furniture and everything else. So people were making more than people could buy. And so manufacturing started to tail off two or three years before the so-called beginning date of the depression that affected black wage earners. You know, they, they, they had been the most recently hired, generally speaking, in manufacturing, and they held lower-paid positions. Well, you know what they say, last in, first out. So unemployment started to grow in the black community, and the more unemployed there are, the fewer baseball tickets are going to be sold. And the Pittsburgh was very industrially based, and this was hurting the white teams too. White, the white semi-pro teams started to go out of existence uh, because their sponsors could no longer afford to fund them. And I think he looked around and saw the his base, which is the regional semi-pro base, money base, was starting to disintegrate, and so he hopped into league. And that, from then on, if there was a league, the Grays were probably in it. He just looked. He just he looked around the land, the financial landscape, saw that he his reasons for avoiding the leagues were no longer paramount. So. They joined a league. Of course, they were more than welcome because they were always a good draw. Right. That's interesting. But that, that obviously that that version of the American Negro League right, was literally a one year wonder. And obviously now in, in a much more broadly depressed uh, nation and economics and all that stuff right beyond the the uh, the lead in that you're you're describing prior to the, the actual crash and, and all that, the, the obviousness of it, I guess, in 18, in uh, 29. So, well, I mean, I, now I'm really interested in, so, okay, I, I get the idea that perhaps there might be sort of strength in numbers and maybe, you know, there's more of a financially advantageous rationale to sort of be within something that's a bit more structured. And obviously that all sort of goes to hell in a handbasket by the end of this uh, 1929 season. How how does he, I guess, go back to being an independent team and, and fump for along, I guess, for a couple more years? Because that, that seems to also lead him to the conclusion of, of maybe going back to the league structure again a few years later, but albeit maybe in, in with him, I don't know, having designs on how to maybe set one up? Well, the, the Negro National League folded in 1932. The Eastern Colored League and the American National League had already gone by the boards. Except for the Negro Southern League, which was sort of always considered to be a minor league, but in 32, it was like the last man standing. So they were a major league, even just because they were there. Um, so he actually had very good independent teams in 30 and 31. And in 32, he made what I'd have to say is his only really dumb <laughs> decision. He started He started a league in the depths of the Depression called the East-West League, he controlled two teams outright in it, uh, of the six, and probably had a lot to say of the management of the team in Cleveland because it was uh, run by one of his old basketball buddies from Pittsburgh who told everybody, no, this is my money, this is my money. Uh, I'm not sure anybody believed him. So Posey controlled 
literally controlled somewhere between a third to a half of the league. And it didn't work. By July, it was out of business. Why, why do you think it didn't work? Was it largely just the, the for all the other reasons that the other leagues were not uh, surviving? And frankly, obviously, other sports? Worst time in the world right. to start a new baseball league. Right. Not even the white majors were doing well in 1932. No one was doing well. I have no idea why he did this. <laughs> in fact, he was he was very loath to ever admit he was wrong about anything. But it, he kind of allowed by the end of 1932 that eh, this wasn't a very good year to try this, <laughs> which is about the the closest he ever came to admitting he was at fault about anything. <laughs> Uh, so, but it's it's also interesting too because it, it's my understanding that it was also uh, I want to say it's ahead of its time, but it, we'll get to that in a second. I think it kind of was right, but this seemed to be like the first maybe attempt to kind of include uh, teams in what were both, I guess, separate at the time or, or previous to both from an eastern and a midwestern kind of geog- geographical kind of approach. Ambitious for sure, right? Uh, timely, not necessarily, but the idea of maybe. I don't know. It seems to me it almost was like sort of became the ahead of its time by a couple of years sort of seeds of how to maybe finally once and for all at some point uh, create a uh, a standard bearer for pro uh, black baseball uh, league play. Yes, that's interesting because as integration loomed in the mid 40s, he started to market his solution. And, 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 you know, I hadn't really thought of it before, but maybe this is where it started. He had idea of one Negro League. At that time, there were two. There was Negro second Negro National League, which was pretty much uh, Pennsylvania and East Coast based. And then there was the Negro American League, which was the Midwest and the Upper South. And he said, look, we can compete. I don't know if I don't know if you I don't know if history would have proven him right, but he said, we can compete with the two white major leagues if we pair our system down to a really strong single black league that stretches from the East Coast to the Midwest with the best with eight teams worth of the best players. We could be so good we could even challenge the white leagues to a uh, a championship series. Now, I don't know if that would ever have worked, but it's an incredibly audacious idea worthy of Posey. No one took him up on it because, well, primarily the Negro American League wasn't in favor because they would have had to jettison their entire southern tier, um, which Posey wasn't interested in, which was really due to transportation costs, kind of a, a drag on the whole system anyway. But yeah, he was he meant he meant there to be a single powerful um black league. He just picked an awful time to try to <laughs> float his idea. 1932. Well, uh, it also uh, but I also get a sense though that um there was the the, uh, the there was also the not only the beginnings of what would what would come after that, but also t- tell me about sort of it almost seems like there was an intra-city or intra-region sort of rivalry with with that of the Pittsburgh Crawfords too, right? Because uh, you know Gus Greenlee, you had it, it seems like Greenlee kind of said 
okay, well, you know, we're, we're going to continue to do this, right? Even if the East-West League is not the original or the right path forward, uh, he seemed to be convinced that uh, this was still worth doing. And he actually, I, I, did he break away, I guess, and create this Negro National League? Um, I'm just curious as to how Greenlee and and Posey were kind of, I don't know, in their own maybe separate ways, kind of still gnawing at that idea of, of top-tier pro Negro League baseball. Greenlee didn't break away so much as he filled he filled a vacuum. The East West League had gone out of business in thirty two. There really there were no there were no major leagues except for the Negro Southern League putting along down there uh, in the South. Greenlee had a lot of money. He was in the entertainment business. Uh, he owned a he owned a club, nightclub, but mostly he made his money from being the Pittsburgh uh, czar of numbers gambling, which we now know as the state lottery in Arizona or Illinois or Pennsylvania or anywhere. Great, a great money-making business, um, particularly you didn't have to share it with the government because it was all illegal at the time. Greenlee had a lot of money, and the Crawfords were an up-and-coming uh, semi-pro team. They needed financial backing. He, he liked sports. He, he had a stable of prize fighters, including John Henry Lewis, who was the middleweight champion of the world at that time. He liked sports, He liked, uh, and he bankrolled the Crawfords, and he did what Posey did over a period of six or seven years, which is to say, kind of ease out the local talent and bring in major league quality talent. Greenlee did it in, a, in about a year. <laughs> he just told, he started signing these high-level guys, and he told the locals, hey, look, if you don't we're now a full-time team. If you don't want to play full-time, you got to leave. And they, almost all of them left. So the Crawfords became a high-rated team, just as Posey. Posey was practically broke by 32. He and his wife almost lost their house to repossession. Um, he signed a lot of Posey's good players away. And, and the Crawfords became the predominant team for a brief time. And Greenlee then organized the second Negro National League using the name of the first one, although it was entirely, almost entirely uh, East Coast based or Northeastern based. And the Grays were allowed in. And the Grays, halfway through the 1933 season, the initial season, the Grays were kicked out because Posey had gone and signed a couple players from the Detroit Stars in the league, violating the rules against player rating. And his, his thing was, these guys were owed a month's salary and, and Detroit hadn't paid them. So I signed them. As far as I'm concerned, they're fire game. It was sort of like the league said, it was one of those things with a, an employee where the, the boss says you're fired and the employee says, you can't fire me, I quit. I'm not sure which happened first, if they were kicked out of the league or he left the league. But at any rate, he was out of the league. So they went back and played independently. And 1934, he rejoined as a associate. The Grays were associate members, which is to say they were not counted in the league standings, but they could play league teams, and they had to keep their hands off the other, the rest of the league's players. A major uh, uh, concession on Posey's part. But they were successful, and by 35, they were back in the league. And they were doing okay. They were not doing great, but they were in the middle of the league. Then Greenlee started to come 
into money troubles. He was incredibly overextended. And after turning a blind eye on vice in Pittsburgh for years for political reasons, I'm sure, maybe moral reasons, the city started to crack down on the numbers business. So Posey started to get some of his, he started to get his players back. He also got his own money partner, a guy named Rufus Jackson, who was the numbers king of Homestead, <laughs> who pumped, who liked sports also, and pumped lots of money into the Grays. And the Grays were solvent again and successful. Well, Greenlee's team was going downhill. And by the end of the 30s, Greenlee was out of the baseball business, and Posey was, by 38, started a, a, a string of nine straight Negro National League championships with the Grays. Posey had a longtime friend named John Clark, who was a journalist and PR man around Pittsburgh, black. But there were five, uh, Clark went to work for Greeley, and for five years, Clark and Posey battled like wolves in the press uh, about who was right and who was wrong. And then Greeley went by the boards, and Clark you know, and Posey had no reason to fight anymore, so they became friends. And one time they're, they're talking after the Crawford's demise, and Posey said to Clark, you know, I always knew I would win because Gus Greenlee never understood the baseball business, which is to say you have to build your base slowly and methodically. You can't just rush in with a bunch of money because when the money vanishes, so will you. So there's, yeah, one of the chapters in the book is called Who Owns Pittsburgh? And it's all about the, the fight between the two of them, um, which, which Posey won. He almost always won because he had incredible staying power. He almost feels to me like a, a pioneer, if you will. I don't think it's a too um, uh, light a word in, uh, in, in professionalizing, being a sports businessman, right, before it was really a thing, right? We all know sports being gigantically, well, uh, with some exceptions nowadays, right, uh, given current conditions, but, you know, big time, multi-billion dollar, you know, enterprises, right? This is way ahead of its time, right? And he's he's really trying to make a living with this, uh, you know, still fledgling pro baseball thing, right? Uh, you know, of, of substance and 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 with plenty of, of obstacles too, given the fact that, that there's segregation. He almost had he, he almost never had any other income other than baseball or basketball for a while. Of course he had Rufus Jackson as a as a well moneyed business partner, but that's perfectly allowable. But Posey didn't do anything really after his early twenties but promote sports. With teams, and when he died in '46 of cancer, Clark Clark was still a writer for the Berkshire uh, for the Berkshire for the Pittsburgh Courier, and he devoted he he wrote a, a, a weekly column which is kind of act you know a, a little bit about everything going on in the Pittsburgh black community, and he said, "Cum was the first Negro I had ever known who set out to make money out of baseball." All the others took a game as a sideline, an excuse to get away from work or home for a day. But even when battling with his back to the wall, he was determined, confident, frank about his position on all matters. He was genuine. He mimicked nobody. He was just composing, nothing less. And he was just amazingly consistent that way. I mean, 
I, I, I've said many times, I think the only person with whom he ever consistently agreed with in public was the guy he saw in the mirror when he shaved every morning. If he, if he had a criticism of you other than him, he was happy to make it. And not only at meetings or whatever, he he was a decent writer. He wasn't a, a, a he didn't have a great writing style, but he was a perfectly good, straightforward writer. And he wrote off and on a sports column for the Pittsburgh Courier for more than twenty years, in which he would tell you what was going on, and then he would tell you who was screwing up and who wasn't. And that wasn't him, of course. <laughs> what was wrong? What's wrong with Negro League baseball? Well, I'll tell you. <laughs> They're not well or enough organized, this, that, the other. Um, he just was an amazingly consistent, frequently abrasive. But when the world around him, the economic world around him would allow it to happen, he was, he was just successful all the time. Well, it sounds like he was also quite good at generating publicity and, uh, uh, if you will, marketing uh, for him, the team, the idea of baseball, Negro League baseball. It seems like he's uh, he was good at generating interest. Yeah. Yes. Well, he had a team that didn't lose very much. I mean, they were they would win. I don't know, eighty percent of their games when they were playing semi pros, or more, more than eighty percent from the semi pros. And the minor, and the low minor leaguers, then they won from thirty eight to forty five. They won the national league championship every year for to finish first place. Uh, one year they lost a postseason playoff uh, to the Baltimore Eli Giants, but frankly uh, they were in first place when the season was over before the playoffs started. So I count that as uh, as one of their. League championships. I got I, so I got. Uh, we could go on for hours, I think, on this. But let me let me ask sort of two sort of uh, uh, questions, I guess, uh, that I, I think are are uh, important, sort of in the general sort of thread of both the team and uh, and Posey's uh, management and running of the team. I, number one, I guess, is uh, just the sheer staggering number of quality baseball players at the time and historically count them 12 including posey himself so let's say 11 the national uh, baseball hall of famers uh this to, to talk about the talent how he was able to corral this great talent some of those names because that uh, phenomenal when you look at it sort of through the lens of history it's amazing he had a great eye for talent and he had the money to pay these guys, whether they were at loose ends, like Joe Williams was. Smokey Joe Williams played for pitch for the Grays in the 30s. And he'd been, he was over 40, and his team in New York had sort of given up on him. Posey hired him, hired him really to be sort of his assistant manager. But it turned out he had plenty left in his arm, and he had about five more good years pitching. He picked up players uh, like Oscar Charleston. He lured, lured them away from when they were in non-league status. He lured them away from uh, uh, league teams by, by paying them more money. And he said, look, we pay, we, pay, we pay better than anybody else, and we pay on time. And we pay every two weeks, which was not always the case with some of these more profligate or 
money-strapped owners. Yeah, there there are about when you take out the pre-Negro League and owners from the 35 members of the Hall of Fame, it leaves about 25 people that Posey theoretically could have signed because they were playing in his time period, and he's got 11 of them. That's a pretty good record. Oh, it's amazing. I mean, cool Papa Bell, Ray Brown, you mentioned Oscar Charleston, Martin Diago, Diego, uh, uh, Bill Foster, Josh Gibson, Judy Johnson, Buck Leonard, of course, who... Uh, uh, gained a, a whole lot of uh, fame with the baseball series with Ken Burns and and helping reignite uh, interest in the Negro Leagues. Obviously, Posey himself, Judd Wilson, Smokey Joe Williams, and Willie Wells. I mean, these are uh, – now, okay, so one last question on that front then. So uh, looking at a chart now of all of, the, of when these gentlemen were all inducted, why do you think it took until 2006 for Posey to get inducted when a whole bunch of these players, just about the majority of them, were – inducted as early as the 70s? Well, the, the special committee in the 70s installed nine, including Leonard, Josh Gibson, Satchel Page, Johnson. Then it was turned over to the Veterans Committee, which were, and they picked Rube Foster. And then at some point, the Hall of Fame had a, two panels of experts put together lists from two underserved, if you will, areas, which are 19th century white players and Negro leaguers. And the, and the Veterans Committee could look at these lists every year. They didn't have to pick anybody, but they could. Well, fortunately, Buck O'Neill was a member of the Veterans Committee at that point. And so several more got in, but they, it was all, con- other than Foster, it was all concentrated on players. You can understand that. The players are the, the meat the, the real bread and butter of the operation as far as the fans are concerned. But that left the owners high and dry. And in 2006, the hall put together the special committee. I'm happy to say I was on it. And we kind of fixed the under-representation of owners we elected for. <laughs> so I think they're all, all good candidates. In fact, there are probably a couple other good candidates who didn't, didn't make the cut. Posey and... Uh, uh, James L. Wilkinson, who, although being white, ran a success, the, the most successful black team in the Midwest at the same time that Pody was running the best team in the East, F. Manley, and Alex Pompez, who ran the um, New York Cubans. So that's sort of, it was, it was real. I mean, we looked at that list in 2006, and then basically a lot of players on it said, people said, why weren't these people already in? Well, they weren't in because the system, the process didn't work very well. So we kind of we kind of doubled <laughs> the number of uh, black baseball figures in the Hall of Fame in one year. I don't know if they'll ever let us do it again. Well, I'm, I'm glad I asked the question. I'm glad I asked you that question then. And but also too, uh, it's also heartening to have seen since the, obviously the uh, the Negro League uh, uh, Hall of Fame in Kansas City, which you know can certainly in its own way right some wrongs as well, as well as perhaps even go deeper uh, into uh, more of the, the, the detail, I guess, of, of some of the uh, of these players that don't, you know, for whatever reasons, don't sort of uh, make sort of the, the grand hall for whatever reasons. All right. Here's my my last sort of question. And, and I, I'm sorry I'm waiting till the end of it, of this conversation to kind of ask it. But a curiosity to me uh, is and I sense I, I get a sense now as a businessman, maybe perhaps why this was the case. Uh, explain to me this, for lack of a better term, adopted home of Washington, D.C. 
because I think a lot of people who come across the Homestead Grays uh, for the first time don't necessarily understand it being sort of a Pittsburgh regional domiciled kind of club. Uh, they may have become aware of it because of their doings in play uh, and the writings about it in Washington, D.C. I don't, I don't get where that comes from. During the war, Washington's black population boomed because the federal government was providing all kinds, it was growing during the war, it needed employees, and it was essentially non-discriminatory, probably not entirely, but mostly, and African Americans went there for jobs, and they were good jobs, they were government jobs. Now you have people who do have money to buy tickets. Um, the major league owners who, who own their own parks, which is basically all of them, love to rent those parks when days when their teams weren't playing because you got to pay you got to pay the electric bill, the water bill, the debt service, whatever. <laughs> Even if there's nothing going on but somebody out there mowing the grass, so they love to rent out their parks to other sporting opportunities and Negro League Baseball was one of them. Calvin uh, Clark Griffiths, rather, was happy to do this. Posey seized the opportunity. It's only 250 miles from uh, Pittsburgh to D.C. And, you know, these Negro Leaguers, some, one of them once told me, I got so used to sleeping on a bus when we'd stop at a hotel, we couldn't sleep. We'd have to walk the streets all night because we couldn't sleep in a bed during the season. So you'd play a game at Forbes Field in Pittsburgh on Saturday. You'd hop on the bus. You'd drive, you'd drive in, uh, during the night and wind up in Washington, D.C. in the morning, get ready and play like a doubleheader in Griffith Stadium in D.C. They did amazingly well. They did just – it was a real moneymaker. And, you know, and also, of course, you were – you were publicizing black baseball in a place where the activities of blacks got covered. So they were in the local, the Washington papers and, you know, and then of course they were the grays. They were always successful. That's, that's how that came about. It just, again, just seized an opportunity and took it just at the right time. Why not move outright? Uh, was there still enough, uh, uh, money to be made within the Pittsburgh uh, Homestead region too, or like why uh, separate it between two teams and maybe dilute? The black population in Pittsburgh was not in a growth mode at that point. And I'm not sure why, to be honest with you, but you look at the census data and it clearly wasn't. So while they were successful in Pittsburgh, it is sort of leveled off. But here you had not not far away by Negro League travel, bus travel standards. Here you had this potential gold mine. And, it, and it actually, the first couple of years, it wasn't all that successful. It was okay, but nothing that probably justified all of this disruption. But then it got better. They got, they got a better PR man. Also, they persuaded uh, the Kansas City Monarchs to come and play several times. And, of course, they had Satchel Page on their roster. And when Page, whenever Page pitched at these neutral parks, major league parks, attendance would like double. Negro League attendance would like double. And so Page came and pitched a few games, and the attendance went through the roof. Again, they, they hired a guy named Art Carter, who was a sports writer for the Baltimore uh, Afro-American to be their PR guy. And Carter was very savvy 
he courted the upper class, uh, the doctors, the lawyers, the uh, higher government, uh, middle-level government officials with tickets and made him, got him convinced that it wasn't looking down, being looked down upon to go to a ball game. And what do they call them now? Influencers. These, these people became influencers and the fans started and the fans followed them. So, yeah, the first couple of years it didn't, and they almost gave up on it, but then they did, you know, again, did cast about and hit on the right formula and it worked like crazy. Satchel Page being a big part of it. All right. Well, here's here's my last question, and I'll let you promote. Give me a sense then, sort of looking, and obviously, you know, the the, the decline of the, the the Negro Leagues, the integration of baseball, and obviously, sort of swept up the Grays too, uh, among all the other sort of uh, successes uh, by that time in the late '40s, early '50s. But give me a sense of what you take away from the legacy. I know it's a sort of oft-used and thrown-around word, but of not only Posey, but also the Grays and their sort of, I don't know, what they meant not only to Negro League baseball, but baseball generally. Because it seems like there was some, and again, I throw this term around, but it, I think it's it's apt, is is there's some pioneering going on in this story? Yes, there is. It's They've, they've set the stage. they set the stage for integration, really, because... By the late 30s, the, you know, everybody, including white sports, some white, some white sports writers, Jimmy Powers in New York and Hayward Broon were saying, why aren't these guys in the majors? We've seen these guys play. They're great. Why aren't they in the majors? So that in the wartime, you know, blacks were, blacks were in the Army, blacks were in the Navy, blacks were in the Air Force, the Tuskegee Airmen, all of that. The time the war is over, Truman um, officially desegregates the military. And it's like, well, now's the time. Branch Rickey was secretly out in front of the whole thing, was scouting and evaluating black players. And integration happened in 46 and 47 to start with. And then by 50, it was pretty white. You know, at least most teams had at least one black player. I guess that's widespread. And it was like pulling the plug on the Negro Leagues because, wow, we can go see Jackie Robinson. We can go see Willie Mays. We can go see Roy Campanella, Don Newcomb in the real big leagues. And um, the Negro Leagues just went from real prosperity and by not, as late as 1946 to scrabbling around by the end of the decade. It's just, the reversal was amazing and they dropped out of sight. So yeah, they were pioneers. Unfortunately, they were unrecognized pioneers for then a couple of decades until the Hall of Fame started to invent Negro Leaguers. Bob Peterson wrote his seminal book, Only the Ball Was White. John Hallway interviewed everybody to get his hands on and turned those oral histories into two or three books that we all still read today because these stars and owners have passed and John got it all down on paper for him, from him. Um, it's weird. We're, we're still... We're still rebuilding a legacy that frankly should never have died out. We shouldn't, we shouldn't be doing what we're doing today. Posey should have had a biography 20 years ago. I mean, I should not have stopped then 20 years ago. I don't know. But, uh, 
Yeah, it's very, it's sort of very strange. We're still finding out details about people. The statistics, which were not kept well at the time, are being rehabilitated, particularly by the Negro League database at seamheads.com, which is a, they have, they have the most complete set of statistics at this point and they're still working on them still happy to get the still happy to get a, a re- previously unknown box score in the mail or whatever and add it to their database yeah we're all working we're all working like crazy it's something that should have been done 25 years ago but it wasn't so here we are Alrighty then, there we go. Lots to uh, still discover, uh, not only about the Homestead Grays, uh, one of the most legendary teams of the Negro Leagues by far, uh, but the Black Fives. We want to get into more of that. The uh, Loendi Black Five that uh, Posey played on and uh, all, you know, the Harlem Globetrotter stories embedded in there and all kinds of, of great stuff yet to discover. It, it's actually, I, we know that the Negro Leagues were relatively I wouldn't call them ragtag, right? Because there were certainly lots of established leagues and teams. But uh, obviously, as we've discovered in our our journeys together uh, in the Negro Leagues, not sort of the most um, easily discovered and or uh, verifiable sometimes. It's getting better, of course, with the Negro League Hall of Fame in Kansas City and all all kinds of other great scribes and and scholars uh, trying to sort of right the wrongs and sort of piece together uh, the various missing fragments of this uh, still evolving Negro League story. But my sense is, and I could be wrong, that the uh, Black Fives era of basketball is even uh, sort of more tattered, shall we say, in terms of a uh, a sort of fully constructed narrative and and sort of a a definitive kind of history. Um, But we're going to get into more of that, hopefully, for sure. And uh, we certainly will look for opportunities to get into more of the Black Fives era basketball scene, because those are, uh, I would argue, even more uh, misunderstood or or not even known about uh, roots for what is now uh, arguably one of the uh, biggest uh, sports uh, machineries on the planet, that being the National Basketball Association and uh, and the pro basketball game uh, writ large. Um, But Jim Overmeyer is uh, the excuse uh, for getting us into both of these topics this week, and we appreciate him being part of our little festivities once again. Uh, his book on uh, Cumberland Posey of the Homestead Grays uh, is out now in paperback form. Uh, it is published by our friends at McFarland. You can find it wherever good books are found. Uh, and uh, there's a bunch of other stuff that uh, that Jim has written. Obviously, the history of the uh, Atlantic, Atlantic City Baccarat Giants. Uh, he's got a uh, a seminal biography of Effa Manley, uh, all those great books. Uh, you'll see those listed uh, on this episode listing on our website at goodseatsstillavailable.com. Just search up uh, this episode, number 168. Oh, my God. Uh, uh, of this uh, show, and you'll find convenient links to those books, uh, as well as, by the way, on the site, all those episodes I just sort of hinted at. Uh, you can download them. You can share them. You can uh, stream them. Do whatever you want. Uh, all of those episodes are there for you to enjoy, as well as all the books and media or whatever. If our guests have, uh, you know, been uh, uh, pitching uh, stuff that they've written or produced, uh, you'll you'll find convenient links there, too. And of course, when you make purchases through those links, usually through Amazon, but also through Apple and other places, uh, we get a little uh, scratch, if you will, for that. And that keeps the show going. And we appreciate if you if and when you do so. Uh, very much because uh, we could always use a little extra change, you know, keep the lights on and uh, 
keep that sort of midnight oil burning as we uh, go to the uh, mat for you each and every week trying to find great stories to to share with you. If you'd like to follow us on social media, you can do that too. Uh, on Instagram, we're at Good Seats Still Available. Uh, on Twitter, you'll find us at Good Seats Still. Uh, you'll find an Instagram, Instagram. I already said Instagram, didn't I? Gosh, darn it. Facebook. Yeah, that's it. That's this is the thing I want to forget. There you go. Uh, but until we do forget it for good, uh, there is a little Facebook uh, page devoted to us. You can follow us there, too, if you'd like. If you'd like to send us an email, of course you can do that. Uh, we are available at hello at goodseatsstillavailable.com. And we also have a little weekly email newsletter we'd like to send out on the weekends, uh, which give uh, our uh, our subscribers a little bit of a head start uh, for the current uh, or the upcoming week's episodes. And you can find a link to that on our website, again, at goodseatsstillavailable.com. Just search around there. You'll find a little web page there that'll uh, just ask for your, uh, your your name and your email address. And, and on that list, you will be. And uh, we look forward to sending that to you, of course. Thank you, of course, uh, as we uh, wrap up things here this week. It's Jerry Payne. Hi, Jerry. How you doing? Uh, he's not listening to me because it's already been recorded and we've already put it out on the internet. But anyway, we of course always want to thank him because he does a great job helping, helping us produce, uh, our episodes each and every week. He has, uh, not run screaming this week. Someday we'll probably, uh, cause him to cry uncle and run for the Z Hills, but this is not the week, but we do of, of course appreciate his efforts. Uh, and we of course appreciate you to no end. Uh, for listening not only this far, but to all of our great shows and all your great commentary. We love it. We appreciate it. Uh, we hope that you will stay safe. Uh, you will be uh, socially conscious. Uh, you will do all the right things to make this world a better place because God knows uh, we could use more of that these days. Uh, hopefully we are uh, a good little respite from a, a crazy world out there. And look, we look forward, of course, uh, to seeing you with uh, hopefully another episode next week. Until then, thank you tremendously. And uh, we'll see you soon. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.